So Daniel chapter four, again, a favorite chapter of mine. We spent a long time in the first section. Nebuchadnezzar writes an official document to all nations, all peoples, all languages, everybody in his kingdom, in his realm, the greatest kingdom in the world at that time. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful being on planet earth at that time. And he writes this letter in retrospect, talking about a period of time, total of about eight years from dream to fulfillment. And he probably writes the letter soon after that. And he writes this letter about what God did in his life. And he has the dream about the giant tree and the tree gets cut down, but the stump gets left and protected with a band and not guitars and drums, but an iron band that, uh, (laughs) that's kind of a funny picture, isn't it? (laughs) And then he doesn't know what the dream means, so nobody can tell him. Daniel, again, shows up on the scene. Daniel gives him the interpretation, King, you're the stump, and here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to go through this really strange period in your life. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar didn't fully understand what the dream was saying. My heart, I'm going to get a new heart. It's what the watchers said in the dream that you're going to get the heart of a beast. And I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar was thinking, what what is that really about? And what does that mean? And so Daniel says, look, you can avoid this if you just repent and do what's right. Be just, be right, and take care of the poor. And if you think about world government, if you think about Lebanon or Venezuela, so much of the trouble is that those in power are corrupt and selfish and take all the resources for themselves. I remember hearing about Venezuela and just people dying from things that are commonly curable with antibiotics because they couldn't get any antibiotics. They were all being hoarded by those in charge. So Venezuela is a great warning to us as well. But those in power oftentimes hoard for themselves and Nebuchadnezzar is being warned that he can do what's right and avoid, potentially avoid what's coming. So verse 28, the question is, what happens next in Nebuchadnezzar's life? What's the result? Does he respond? Does he repent? Well, verse 28 says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. All that was spoken of in the dream, all that he saw, all that Daniel explained to him, it all happened. Well, when did it happen? How did it happen? Verse 29 tells us, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? So we have two things. And today's study, you could call it from the palace to the pasture and back. That's kind of a little sermon title if you want to remember that. But I'll have a series of couplets as we go through each little section. So the first couplet from this section is God's delay and Nebuchadnezzar's delusion. So God's delay, that's from our perspective. God doesn't delay in anything. His timing is always perfect. So recognize when I say God's delay, I'm looking at it as his gracious delay of 12 months. So Nebuchadnezzar has 12 months to think about and to respond to what was said. God could have just judged him right then. God could have done it right then, the day after the dream or that night, Nebuchadnezzar could have fallen into his insanity. But God gives him a year. I think that's pretty gracious, don't you? And that grace period from God is oftentimes interpreted as God's powerlessness or carelessness or unwillingness or inability. So for some people, they use that time and they really respond. 
But other people use that time to grow more and more cold or more and more proud. See, I'm untouchable. That's what proud people think, that they're untouchable. So there's this delay of 12 months that go by. And I think America has been living, in a sense, under God's delay. He's been gracious and gracious and gracious and waiting and giving opportunity for us to respond to his voice, respond to his word, respond to his call. But eventually, 12 months is up, and God does what he said he was going to do. He brings a discipline. He's not trying to destroy Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to teach him. So what happens at 12 months after God's delay is this highlight of this obvious statement of one of those things that you go, oh, did I say that out loud? He looks at his kingdom. He's walking on the palace roof. He's like, oh, look, look at what I have done. Look at what I've accomplished in my life. Look at my resume. Wow, I am impressive. And he looks around this delusion, and it's not really, by technical terms, it's not really a delusion. It's really an overinflated view of self. Deluded people, really, their delusion is so far from reality that it's delusional. But Nebuchadnezzar has a reason, in a sense, to be overinflated about his self-worth and his value, doesn't he? I mean, he is the most powerful man, the richest man, the most commanding presence on the face of the earth. He is God to the people around him. Then they believe throughout generations in history, people believe that the kings were sort of God's incarnate. So Nebuchadnezzar, I imagine, had that sense, that presence as being untouchable, self-made greatness that had to be recognized by others. So his delusion, in a sense, if you'll let me use the word loosely, is an overinflated view of self. That was corroborated by, that was encouraged by both his culture and his local circle. Those around him said, oh, king, live forever. They were riding on his coattails. They would inflate him. His culture inflated him. Everything around him fed into his delusion of his overinflated view of self, that he is, he must be God. I must be God. I'm going to have an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. Look what I've done. Now, he had, you could say, high self-esteem. And we've been under that teaching for a number of years. I don't know if it's still as popular, but the key for humanity is greater self-esteem. And then sometimes the church goes, no, 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 the key for us is the less self-esteem. And the key really is proper esteem, having a proper view of yourself. Now, you can't have that apart from a recognition that in the beginning, God created. So there's a very appropriate middle ground, I'll say, because Yes, in a sense, we are nothing, but we're nothings that God loves tremendously and that God created. So you can have this false sense of humility where you down yourself too much and really disrespect and dishonor God by doing that. So it's not more self-esteem or less self-esteem. It's appropriate self-esteem. It's appropriate God-esteem. That's really the key. Nebuchadnezzar represents that person that thinks he's someone that he's not that thinks he's more valuable and more important than he is. Because he looks around, he says, isn't this great Babylon? Is he right or is he wrong? He's right. Babylon was great. The greatest city of the ancient world at that time. Is this not great Babylon? Yes. That I have built. Did he build it? Yes. In a sense, he built it. So he could say that. He commissioned it. He used the slave labor, whoever he used to build it. By my mighty power. Ooh, you're getting close, Nebi. 
I mean, yes and no, because God is the one that said through Daniel that it was God that put Nebuchadnezzar there. I have given you a kingdom, God says. Back in, I think that was in chapter two. But he doesn't see God. He has no recognition of God's involvement in his life. The gods existed, but they existed to be manipulated by man for man's purposes, to do what man wanted. But that's not the living God. The living God does not exist to be manipulated by man. So he says, by my mighty power, well, yes and no. And here's where we get really into trouble. For the glory of my majesty. Now we get his motive. And I believe that what Nebuchadnezzar felt in his heart. You know, when someone says that out loud, we know out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever found yourself saying something? You go, wow, did I really just say that? That's an ugly part of me in there. So Nebuchadnezzar says, it's for the glory of my magnificence. I am magnificent and other people need to see and applaud. When you read the word glory, you think about it in athletics. When we say that was a glorious moment, it's that time when there's the slam dunk and the crowd goes wild or there's the long pass and the touchdown at the buzzer and and everybody goes wild. Everybody's cheering and applauding. That's glory. People live for that stuff. Live for that glorious moment. What you're living for is the applause and the cheering of the crowd. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is living for. He thinks his value, his glory, that's glory is weight, how much I'm worth, how much my life is worth in value, that that can be measured by how many people applaud for me. And the way I get people to applaud for me is I wear the right clothes, I drive the right chariot, I build with the right materials. I build this kingdom so other people applaud. And then I have this sense that I must be equal to the value of what I possess or what I produce. Those are the things that give me value. And that could lead to anything but insanity because culture changes what it values. We're seeing it right before our very eyes. Cultural shifts happen all the time. What was valued in third century England is a different set of value systems than 21st century America. So if you're trying to do that, what kind of sneakers you wear, what kind of car you drive, and this is what comes out of his heart. This is his delusion. I am only as valuable as, or I am as valuable as, the things I possess and the things I produce. Notice he's not building for the blessing of others. It's not wrong to build cool stuff. I love to build. There's a creative part of us that comes from God. God's a creator. And I think we enjoy creating, but we create for a different purpose when we're God's children. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't building for the blessing of others or for the glory of his creator, of his God. He was creating and building for his own glory. And the question that naturally arises from this is, what are you building? What are you working hard to build? And who's it for? And what's it for? Think about how hard Nebuchadnezzar worked. Well, he didn't work, but they had armies and and led this nation, brought it out of obscurity into the Neo-Babylonian empire. And to look around at what you've accomplished. See, here's the thing. I look around here, again, pre-COVID, walking from the building to the office. I mean, we got 26 acres here, beautiful church building. And it'd be so delusional for me to walk around and go, look what I created. We had nothing. And man, boom, and I know, and I know that, like, just look out, don't stand near me because lightning is coming, which is what God could have done to Nebuchadnezzar. He chooses a much different tactic. But to walk across the grounds and go, look what I created, 
I mean, I just love what we have here. But yet to walk across, watch people mowing the grass and people are coming and going for Bible studies and things are happening. And it's like, wow, God, look what you're doing. I'm so thankful to just be included, to be able to be one little cog in the wheel of your will. A whole different heart, isn't it? A whole different heart. It doesn't really matter what you say. You can say that. We're good at fooling ourselves. We can say, oh, God, I'm doing this for you. I'm buying this new boat for you, for your people, for your kingdom. I'm only going to use it for me, but I'm doing it for you, Lord. Maybe someday I'll invite someone out to this beautiful house I have. It's for you, but I don't ever use it for you. So we can fool ourselves. But the question is, where did it come from? How did you get it? Was it your hard work or was it God's grace? And then what are you using it for? Are you using it so people look at you and go, wow, or that they look at your God and go, wow. So verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, just as he's even saying it. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox seven times, or we believe seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. So the couplet for this section is Nebuchadnezzar's crisis and God's classroom. Nebuchadnezzar's crisis is a crisis of loss. God's classroom, it's a seminary class. He's going to be in theology school, the greatest theology school on planet earth. He signed up for, against his own will, he signed up for Humility 101. So we'll watch as that happens. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar's crisis, you remember the tree in the dream? It was cut down, its branches were stripped, its leaves were stripped, its fruit was scattered, all the animals that enjoyed resting under its shade, all the things, people that were riding on his coattails, all the fruitfulness, all stripped away, everything stripped away, and he was left a stump. His new nickname was Stumpy. Stumpy the king. He's a stump. But that's the grace. There is a stump. And then the dream went on. The watcher said, you're going to be made to eat grass, just like it says here. So now we see, just as he's even saying how great he is, there's all these things that are about to be stripped from him. The loss of his power. Your royal authority has been taken. See, delusional people, people that have an overinflated view of themselves, somehow think that they're invincible and that rules don't apply to them. The buck stops with them and they're untouchable. You begin to believe that. It's a very insidious, sinful thing that happens in the heart when you begin to believe you are the ultimate authority and the ultimate power. And you get there by comparing yourself not to God, but to other people. That's the great challenge of our world is everybody's comparing themselves to other people. Our race is greater than your race. Our party is greater than your party. Our this is greater than your that. We're comparing ourselves to other people. But when everybody sees themselves relative to God, it's a perspective changer. It doesn't mean we stop having differences of opinion on how to live and how to operate. Those divisions are going to be natural part of our human lives, but we handle them differently when we're humble, don't we? So he loses his power. He loses his audience. He's made to 
be driven away from people. If you're someone who's full of pride and trying to impress other people with how valuable you believe you are by the stuff you have, once you lose your audience, once your Facebook accounts get shut down, once Instagram goes away, your audience disappears, then who are you trying to impress? Then you're alone with God. And God is not impressed because there's nothing you have that he didn't give you. So all of a sudden you're going, wow, I'm not as concerned with impressing people. So these are the areas where he is being stripped away. His palace, this is worse than Beverly Hills to Skid Row. From the palace to the pasture. Made to eat grass like an ox. Even his pantry is going to change. I mean, I imagine this guy had food unending. The king's delicacies, now he's eating grass. I don't know, at that time, grass, the things that grew in that area were things like chickpeas. Those were popular. So it's, you know, a human being can't live. You can't go out there and eat grass and live. It could be some of the crops of the fields he was eating. There are certainly things that could have sustained him. And certainly he was taking on that posture of believing that's who he was, this ox. Eat grass like an ox. So his audience, his power, his palace, his pantry, And his control, this was an interesting one. He was the one who would drive others out of their homes. Remember, he made that threat to all the astrologers and all the sorcerers. If you can't tell me the dream and its interpretation, I'm going to take your house, I'm going to destroy it, turn it into a dunghill, and I'm going to cut off your heads. And now all of a sudden, he's lost his control. He recognizes that there's things that are going to happen in his life that are outside of his control. And like the animals... Nebuchadnezzar will have to be humbled by receiving provision, natural provision by the grace of God. The wetness, the dew from heaven that's going to keep him washed, if you can even call it that, and the food from the field. And I meet people, you know, it's funny, I meet people in counseling, people that go through loss, crisis of loss. Has anybody here been through a crisis of loss? You know, you found your stability in your bank account. I mean, we're sort of going through a crisis of loss now, loss of business loss of relationships. We're in a crisis right now, if you haven't noticed. We're in a significant crisis. And these crises of loss that we go through, sometimes people are schooled by that. They learn from that. What's really important that everybody can be taken out of my life. There's no guarantees for my bank account. There's no guarantees for my health. There's no guarantees for my family. People die and it's painful. The only certainty I have in my life is my faith. Nobody can touch it. My God, no one can touch him. He's eternal. He's immutable. He's unchanging. His love, his light, his truth. And so you find out when everything gets stripped away, you find out who you really are and what really matters. And people will still fight and scheme instead of humbling themselves. And no, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to figure this out. And I'll meet them in counseling. They'll come in for benevolence help. Well, it's just a, a short thing that we're in and we'll get through it, but we just need a little bit of help right now. This is the 17th time we've been here for a little help right now, but we don't want God. We just want a little help, and then we'll be fine by ourselves. Okay, go back to the pasture with you. Seven years Nebuchadnezzar is in the pasture. God knew how hard and how proud his heart was. You know somebody in your life, you just watch them suffering because of their pride, and you just, oh, would you just humble yourself already? No, 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 I'm going to figure it out. No, no, no. And you just think they'll go no lower. And then all of a sudden, they go lower. 
And I don't think God enjoys that. I know he doesn't enjoy that. But he does it so that you can have a sound mind, an appropriate relationship with him, and appropriate relationships with other people and with the world you live in. So it's seven years Nebuchadnezzar is in that position doing that. And life is happening. Babylon is running, which is another humbling thing that evidently things can go on without Nebuchadnezzar. We'll talk more about that later. Hold on to that thought. So God's seminary classroom, we go from Nebuchadnezzar's crisis, crisis of loss, to God's classroom, which is a seminary classroom. Again, as I said, seven-year course of study in humility and sovereignty. One person said that the story of Nebuchadnezzar is a story of a man who thought himself a god who was made a beast to learn that he was but a man. No matter how much he owned, lifestyles of the rich and famous, the richest and the famousest, he was still a man. Moses went to the same seminary. Moses spends 40 years in the palace of Pharaoh. Then he spends 40 years getting his BSD, his backside of the desert degree, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. And then when God calls him, at first, he thought people should recognize my greatness. I'm going to save this Hebrew slave from getting beat up by the Egyptian. And he steps in and he murders the Egyptian guy and he ends up on the run. And he thinks that people are just going to automatically accept him as their deliverer. And boy, is he surprised when they don't. So he heads for the desert and ends up with Jethro's sheep. Doesn't even have his own sheep for 40 years. Nothing of his own. He got his family. And then when God brings him out of obscurity, he becomes a much humbler man, doesn't he? And now God says, I can use you. Matter of fact, it's D.L. Moody that said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Think about the apostle Paul. He started out as Saul, namesake of King Saul, whose name means sought after one. Oh, we want him. That's what Saul means. One who is sought after or prayed for. We need you. We can't survive without you. We want you. And then God humbles him. He's blinded, knocked off his high horse, so to speak, on the Damascus road. Ananias prays for him, right? And then he's renamed by God, Paul, from Saul. Do you know what Paul means? It means little or humble. So he goes from being sought after to being humble. This is an ongoing, ongoing theme in the Bible. It's the whole theme of First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. All themes, this comparison between humble Hannah who prays for a child, humble and barren Hannah who prays for a child, and then the other wife of Elkanah who is proud and mean and nasty. And who does God really use? He uses the humble one. He uses the mistreated one. And this is the story of God. This is the heart of our God. And it's going to be until you learn that the Most High is sovereign. I remember talking about church life here. I remember endeavoring to plant a church. Like, I don't have a seminary degree, and I've never planted a church before. We just felt called by God that wanted to see verse-by-verse Bible teaching in our community. And it wasn't something that was already available. And so I remember calling up the pastor down in Lynchburg, who I'd heard on the radio. And I remember saying these words to him. I'm a nobody from nowhere. I'm just a horseshoer. I'm a blacksmith. What do I know? I'm a nobody from nowhere. But can we plant a church in our county? Can we plant a Calvary Chapel here? And then the conversation ensued. 
The minute I forget that is the minute I have to go back to school. We started with nothing, which was a great way to start. We didn't have a band. We didn't have a building. We had a Bible and the Spirit of God and a calling. And that is still all we need. So there's all this talk about the government closing the church. Oh, the government's going to close the church. Have we forgotten the church is not a building? Governments can close buildings, but the church is a living, breathing organism of people, of God's children. It's not just makes sense to say that. If I leave to go somewhere or we leave to go somewhere, I can call Helga at home and I can say, did we remember to close the house? Did I remember to close the house? Did I close the door to the house? Oh, yes, we closed the door. And I can say, well, did I let the dog out? Did I put the dog out before I left? Yes, that would make sense. But I can't say, oh, honey, did I remember to close the dog? What do you mean close the dog? It's an animal. It's a living, breathing entity. You can't close a dog. I can close the dog in the door sometimes, get close to that. So just be thoughtful as we communicate with each other and we communicate with our world around us. We recognize that buildings are places where the church meets. And we can meet in a big building, and we can meet in a house, and we can meet in a field, and we can meet under a picnic shelter, and we can meet wherever God calls us to meet. And thank God for that, because that's where church in China has thrived. There's no reason, there's no reason that we have to feel cut off at the knee. Thankfully, we get to use the building for right now, but I don't know what comes next. I believe we're preparing for whatever that is, hoping to see men, women raised up as leaders in the community, as people willing to shepherd small groups of people in a home environment. And then if it doesn't happen, fine. But if it happens, we're ready. No harm, no foul. God's preparing us now because we know that God rules. And nothing happens. Nothing happens in our world outside of his care and his knowledge. Whatever happens, he's allowed it. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar has to learn. Nebuchadnezzar was set up by God, and he can be taken down by God. I was called by God to pastor this church, and he can take me out if he wants. Put someone else here. Put someone more humble than me, if that's what it takes. And he'll do it. It's just for his kingdom. He'll care for me, too, just like he's caring for Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting decision, isn't it, that he uses something like mental illness rather than just, boom, you have him conquered, another nation comes in, boom. He really loves Nebuchadnezzar. Loves him enough to help him to learn. So not just knowing, but acknowledging. Nebuchadnezzar is going to acknowledge that God reigns and not him. Verse 33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So most would say, that Nebuchadnezzar had some sort of psychotic break. I mean, it was immediate. He lost his marbles. He had a meltdown. He had a nervous breakdown. Whatever you want to call it, he lost it. He went insane. At least that's what we see as we look at him. It was sudden onset. The Bible says immediately what had been said was fulfilled. So there was a sudden onset of what would be perceived as mental illness. Although we know the behind the scenes story, don't we? What did God say he was going to do? I'm going to take out your heart of a man and give you a heart of a beast. So whatever's in your heart, if in your heart you think you're a beast, then that's what you're going to act like. And we have raised a generation of people who have been told, there is no creator, you're an animal. 
You're just a higher animal than other animals. And then we wonder why people act like animals. Because they think that's what they are. I mean, that's the beauty of the Christian life is not that I needed to go to to self-help classes. The beauty of the Christian life is that God gives me a new heart. Unified with Adam and God put me in Christ. I got a new heart and a new life. Because whatever's in your heart, what you think as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Whatever you believe to be true in your heart about yourself, that is how you're going to live. He didn't have a traumatic event. It wasn't connected to PTSD, no physiological explanation. Sometimes mental illness can be connected to an event or a crisis. It can be connected to a medical reason, a physiological reason for a mental illness or that type of presentation. But not always. What would we do for Nebuchadnezzar today? The guy's got what we would call today zoanthropy, which means the delusion that one is an animal or has taken the form of an animal. Now, he's not like a werewolf, part animal, where he actually transforms. He's a man. He's always been a man. But now what's in his heart, his identity, he feels like he connects with, he identifies as an ox. And there are people, they're called other kin. It's amazing the things I discover when I research this kind of stuff. They're called other kin. And they are exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is. He's believing in his heart that he's an animal. And I read a story about a guy who believed he was a fox and he would play with his tail and he really believed, identified with a fox, specific type of animal. It's zoanthropy. Now, specifically for Nebuchadnezzar, it's called boanthropy. And it's easy to spot a patient suffering from this because they're down and off worse chewing grass. It's a psychological disorder in which the sufferer believes he or she is a cow or ox. So this is a identifiable psychiatric issue, but we know it's an identity issue. If you think you're John F. Kennedy, you're going to try to imitate what he did. It's temporary. What would we offer him today? He's not demon-possessed, although I heard one guy say, I think he's demon-possessed. Nothing in here that indicates that he was demon-possessed. God tells us what's going on. I gave him a new heart. You want to act like a beast? I'll give you the heart of a beast. You want to be beastly? I'm going to let you experience what it's like to really be an animal and see how you like it. And hopefully at the end, you'll come running back. And it's a temporary situation. It's going to last for seven years. He's going to get better without medication, without intervention. I'm not saying that's always the case. Medical things, physiological things, we're glad that medicine exists. And sometimes that's necessary. But we run to it because we won't run to God. Now, again, please don't hear me condemn you because you're on a psychiatric medication. I'm not doing that. First things first, though. Sometimes medicine can't help a spiritual issue. So make sure that you've dealt with God in the midst of this and you're dealing with the spiritual side. The world has nothing to offer you, only God. This is not something that even I have nothing to offer you. All I can do is point you to God. Keep hammering it out with him. He's fully human, but the human has been given this heart. And it's really, the word is interesting. It's a heart level identity change and it has to do with what's central to himself. He's lost self-care. He's not cutting his hair. He's not cutting his nails. There's neglect of the body, much like you'd see in schizophrenia. Talk about that in a minute. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to go through this for seven years. Now, if you like history, Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, there's a PBS special that they did on him called When a Secret President Ran the Country. And I'll keep it brief. Under Woodrow Wilson, he had a stroke during his second term. And when he had that stroke, they kept it very secret from the country. 
They kept it very moderated. Only very few people knew. And those that knew didn't know how severe it was. So who ran the country? His wife did. Edith Wilson acted as much more than a steward after her husband's stroke during his second term. She actually read papers, read briefings, read updates, and would share them with him and then took back the information, got him through his second term. Because if they didn't, it would have meant the power of all the people around him, not in a negative sense, but it would have caused a lot of chaos because there was nothing in the Constitution to account for such a condition. If the president is incapacitated or dead, we have a way to account for that. But what Wilson was going through, they didn't have a way to account for. So she said in her memoirs, I studied every paper sent from the different secretaries or senators, and I tried to digest and present in tabloid form the things that, despite my vigilance, had to go to the president. So during that second term, Edith Wilson ran the country in conjunction with her husband. So who's running the show in Babylon while Nebuchadnezzar's eating grass? Is it Daniel? Is it Nebuchadnezzar's son? We don't know for sure. And it goes back to that experience that we say, well, people can't live without me. That's what pride says. Oh, if I'm not present, if I'm not involved, well, things are going to just fall apart. No, they won't because you're not holding them together. When I quit my trade to become a pastor, everybody, my circle, my culture all said, oh, Steve, we can't possibly survive without you. Puff up, puff up, puff up. Manipulate, manipulate, manipulate. No one can do it like you. No one can do as good as you. Guess what? They all found replacements for me. And now, oh, well, Steve, he wasn't as good as you. Now the new guy is the best guy. I mean, people are fickle. And other people are better than me. God calls me away from Calvary Chapel. Don't do that to me. God is in control. He lifts up. He puts down. He's in control. There's lots of great people doing cool things out there. So verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. A, Nebuchadnezzar's sanity and God's sovereignty. The interesting thing is when he says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity, if you like to take notes, you can write the word mind, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they choose to use the word friend, P-H-R-E-N, which is the location in the Greek mind of thought or contemplation. They thought, their belief was that thought and contemplation and emotions all existed not in the head, but in the heart, the chest cavity. So if you've ever heard of your phrenic nerve, anybody heard of the phrenic nerve? That innervates your diaphragm. So it's contained here in your chest. It's got that same word, friend. And it's the root word for schizophrenia, which is a division of mind and emotion. So thought and emotion are always coupled together. So Nebuchadnezzar says that his sanity was restored to him. He had gone insane. He lost his mind. And there's an insanity that exists apart from acknowledging the existence of and sovereignty of God. Thinking and feeling are intimately connected. He'd lost his ability to think properly and to feel appropriately. The answer wasn't, I found a doctor to treat me. I got the right medication. This is the story of the prodigal son who came to himself, feeding the pigs in that humble spot. 
And look what he says. He says, then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That is an interesting statement. It's used of God's covenant faithfulness. That's not just a random wording. When he says that his kingdom endures from generation to generation, that speaks of God's faithfulness. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. That's an adverb of negation. Compared to God, everybody on earth is not. God is, I am not. That's what an adverb of negation is. My importance, my pride is negated in the presence of God. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this is the second part, not just Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, which is restored. It's restored and he's able to recognize God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is supreme power or authority. The God esteem movement is what we need, that God lives forever. I am temporary. I'm eternal, but only connected. Well, we're all eternal in the sense of, you'll see that at the end of Daniel. We all exist eternally, eternally alive or eternally dead. Eternally in community or eternally in isolation. Eternally in the light or eternally in the darkness. Eternally in love or eternally apart from love. The lake of fire is not the thing that scares me. It's the eternity of isolation and darkness. Do you know what being isolated in darkness does to a human being after 24 hours? You go insane. I can't even imagine what eternity apart from the love and the light of God would be like. We're not going to be having a party in hell and talking and joking about all the shenanigans we did on earth. You're going to be in isolation, in darkness, total darkness. So learning of God's sovereignty is what he's responding to here. There's a good God. Humility is not that hard. There's a good God who created. It wasn't chance. It's a good God who created, and he created me. Like a potter creates a vessel, he created me. And he gave me certain characteristics. He had a purpose in mind for me, and he created me according to the purpose he had in mind for me, gave me certain characteristics. Some are valuable to our culture. Some are not valuable to our culture. That's not our choice. You know, we want everybody to be equal. Everybody's not going to be equal because some people were created with traits that our society happens to honor and value. But that doesn't mean you're more valuable. Some people are created with traits and skills that are less honored or valued by our culture. That doesn't mean you are inherently less valuable. It just means that you happen to live in a culture that values more or less what you can do, what God gave you. He had a purpose in mind. And then I have a chance to walk in all I was created to be using my gifts and discovering what God created me for, all for his glory. What's the response? Gratitude. Gratitude. And love back. What's humility? Proper estimation of God and myself. And notice the results. He praised, he honored, and he glorified God, not himself. This is why Nebuchadnezzar's writing to the world. He wants the world to know about his humiliation, about the seven years he spent. He would say, I spent seven years with mental illness. And when I came to myself there, I finally looked up. That's what he says. I finally looked up. And that's when my life changed. I saw God for who he is. I recognized my weaknesses and his strength, my powerlessness and his power, and on and on we go. Notice what else he says. He says, all the peoples of the earth, Jeff Bezos, take your pick. Steve Jobs dies of cancer. 
there's just things we're powerless over. Everybody steps from time into eternity. And everybody has to know what happens on the other side. And no one, no one can tell God what to do. No one can question him like you know everything, like you have the clear picture. Oh, why did you make me this way? The clay would say, why would you do this? So at the same time, verse 36, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor, my brightness. That's a word that speaks of a flower blooming, which again, in that day, what that spoke of was reproduction. A flower blooms, is ready for reproduction, and it speaks of fruitfulness. The change in his life, fruitful, I can be fruitful again. They were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. So we see Nebuchadnezzar's restoration and God's grace. God said, leave the stump. And out of that stump is going to grow a new Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt or lift up and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. I wonder if Nebuchadnezzar got to think on all that he did that was wrong. That's really humbling when you realize that you thought you were great, but then you look at some of the things you've done, some of the ways you've treated people, some things you've said, and you go, wow. That was ugly. Where did that come from? It comes from a wicked heart. It's where it comes from. It needs a savior. Because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar says to the world, be careful. Be careful of pride. Be careful of an overestimation of yourself. Because God is able to humble you. The most high, the king of heaven. So the big question as we end up, he says, okay, kingdom, there it is. Now you have to decide. You have to do something with that. Now I'm glorifying and lifting up the king of heaven. Was Nebuchadnezzar saved? Isn't that the great question we want to know? Is we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Bible doesn't tell us. So I'm not going to say. But the better question is this morning, are you? Are you saved? Have you humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he can lift you up in due time? Have you had that heart-to-heart recognition where God's presence just reminds you of just who you are in your marriage, in your parenting, in your job? You might be the CEO or the stock boy. Doesn't matter. God values you the same. So much so that he gave his only begotten son for CEOs and stock boys and girls. So if you don't know, if you haven't humbled yourself, today would be a great day to just humble yourself before God and acknowledge his sovereignty and give your life to him.